This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Bonanit, welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. That's the extent of the Catalan we're going to throw into this week's show, brought to you by Fly Racing and also Rental Street. And speaking of Rental Street, David and Neil, uh, we've got a little interview with Cameron Bobier coming up later in this show where we talk about setup for Moto2, uh, how he's been adapting to the class in his second season and the chances of possibly getting an American into MotoGP later in the season. So are you both excited and pumped to hear what Cameron has to say? Always excited and pumped to hear what Cameron has to say. Yeah, he's yeah, a- he's a he's an intelligent young man. So yeah, definitely always in uh, interested in what he has to say. And I would also just like to say that you know you might have started this off with two words of Catalan, but if you wanted, you could do an entire podcast in Catalan, which I'm always deeply impressed with because you could also do one do it in Spanish. David, you're trying to flatter me from the off, so we don't make too many jokes at your expense. It's working, so <laughs> we'll all be uh, just trying to persuade you to stop feeding me. Um, uh, tiramisu at, uh, at lunchtime. I know we mentioned on the Paddock Pass podcast notes package shows. Uh, incidentally, if you're listening to this and you want to hear more updates during a MotoGP weekend, we do basically give little mini shows on Patreon where we describe what's happened, what the riders have said, what our thoughts and opinions are. And uh, we did say, Dave, that we have put on our Twitter feed um, some photos of you being subjected to abuse uh, by Tiramisu. And we haven't done it yet. So that needs to be uh, actioned. Of well, course, you, you, sorry, Neil, you know who we are by now. My name's Adam Wheeler, uh, editor of OnTrackOffRoad.com, joined by Mr. David Emmett, who's been burning the midnight oil. Midnight oil? That's oh. a, some strange Aussie uh, 80s band. The, I mean, yes. Oh, yeah, that's the term, right, Sam? Yes, it? it is. Yeah, burning, burning the midnight, midnight oil. oil. But, but I haven't been burning the midnight oil because I went to bed early on Sunday night because I was really tired. So I got up, uh, so I've been burning the morning oil. Well, so eventually there will be some extra content on motomatters.com. Go and check that out. And then uh, Mr. Neil Morrison, thanks for putting us up in your fantastic new freshly painted abode here in the center of Barcelona. It gives us the chance to talk about MotoGP in the last round nine of the series uh you know together again and not doing it over zoom exactly yeah we're christening a new table i bought for uh, my living room what dave doesn't know either is that there is an extra large serving of tiramisu waiting in the fridge for him <laughs> after this uh, <laughs> podcast is done so uh yeah the joy will continue right through the night well I- i'm just glad that you bought me coffee yeah, don't uh, demotivate him before we've even tucked into the podcast, Neil. Um, like I mentioned, we're coming to you thanks to our friends at Fly Racing. They do a fantastic catalogue of off-road riding gear, um, which, you know, I tra- wore their Formula helmet, actually, when I was testing the Stark electric bike this week. Fantastic piece of kit, super light, very comfortable, uh, good ventilation, can thoroughly recommend it. But also they have lots of street gear, so jackets, protection, um denim you know whatever you really need to ride your street bike fly racing we've got it and of course rental street as we mentioned uh bars accessories everything from you know grips brockets the whole works if you need to upgrade your motorcycle in any way then rental on their website have whatever you need guys let's get tuck into the um the grand prix the, let me think get the official title again the grand Prix monster energy the catalonia so that should be fairly easy enough to get through it let's go through our moments um i'm going to start off because the most obvious one a quite remarkable sight um alessia spargaro i do wonder if he's you know we're talking on monday evening after the race i'm pretty sure he didn't sleep that much on sunday evening because that would have been going through his mind over and over again of course the people who have still to catch up with the race i'm talking about 
alleged mistiming or miscounting the amount of laps, uh, doing 23 circulations, coming across the finishing line, thinking he had earned a, a well-earned podium, only to find out actually by turn three, shit, I've got to gas it and there's one more lap left. Um, he was distraught. And I think a lot of people... Um, you know, had a lot of sympathy for him. Uh, yeah, I was at the test t t today, the Monday test after Barcelona, and uh, Aleix didn't speak to the press after the test. A lot of riders do, not all of them do. Uh, he didn't. And when we asked the press officer, will, um, will Aleix be speaking to us? He said, no, nah, he's got a hangover. <laughs> um, but I don't think the hangover was from drinking excessively. I think it was just from that sinking feeling, knowing that he basically threw uh, a certain podium and nine points away in the championship. Yeah. yeah. At least he you now has an answer for what's your most embarrassing moment as a motorcycle racer. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, should we be a little harsh in judgment? I mean, does like a veteran of the class and how many races has he done? It's got to be... hundred and something. Yeah, yeah. it's normal. Neil, approaching 200 races in MotoGP, I would have thought. I mean, do we excuse that or is it? I mean, there's lots of reasons why it happened. The most obvious one, like I, I have a theory personally that it's also because he's a local. He knows Barcelona. He knows the scoring tower. He's used to looking at the scoring tower. But the trouble is he's been in the Grand Prix uh, paddock so long that he doesn't race there all of the time. So he forgets that they count down to zero rather than counting down to one. Um, so it's... And also the Aprilia, the Aprilia garage were the very first at the start uh, of pit lane. And so his pit ball was right just on the exit of turn, uh, of the final corner, turn 14. Um, and so it was actually more difficult to see. And there's a few tracks. We talked about this on the no shows as well, uh, as well. There's a few tracks where this is a real problem. So for example, Saxon Ring is a nightmare. If you're in the first garage in, in the Saxon Ring and also that there's a, not just the first garage, sometimes I think if you're like in garage five or six sort of thing, because you are just, your pit board is just over the hump, it's just over the crest going on to the straight, so you really don't see it until the very last minute, and it becomes very, very difficult to actually, actually sort of see it. There must be a few tracks like that. I mean, obviously I can't speak from experience, but you'd think Motorland Aragon must be another one where there's yep. a slight crest coming out of the final turn, and then Silverst uh, Silverstone, um, you know, coming out of the final corner. If your pit box is right at the start of the pit yep. lane, then you're going to have to be cranking your, your head right to try and... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about Silverstone is that at least, uh, it, you know, it's a right hander lead, leading onto it. And so you're actually sort of looking, your head is on the right side of the bike. Uh, uh, or in this, yes, no, it is, it's actually on the right side of the bike. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, you don't have to look. But if you are sort of, you know, in, in a group of two or three, and you know, it's a great place to be overtaking, um, then yes, it, it becomes difficult. So it's, uh, well, I mean, we'll talk about this later. I will talk about finishing races because finishing races, it seems self-evident, but in actual fact, it's really quite complicated. Uh, Neil, what was your moment of the weekend? Um, it was the, probably the best race of the day yesterday was the Model 2 race. I think it was the best Model 2 race we've had so far this year. Great victory fight that went right the way down to the last lap and we saw a uh, change of lead. We also saw a change of third place at turn 10 and then turn 12, which were, what, five uh, and three turns respectively from the checkered flag. It was a great race which had lots of drama. Um, two of the main title contenders duking out the front, maybe three of the title contenders if you want to include Augusto Fernandez in there as well. Um, and yeah, Vietti's little cutback, he had been so strong into turn 10 all through that race. It had been fantastic. Outbreaking Kinet, 
And I really enjoyed how he basically just altered his line and let Kinnett go defensive. Kinnett went defensive, outbreak himself ever so slightly and just was a little wide at the apex and that was all he had he needed to get through. So I thought that was a, a superb performance from the championship leader who hasn't been that convincing recently. Was it me just being, or, you know, not being very observant, but did Aaron Kinnett actually have a different coloured bow tie this week? It seemed like kind <laughs> of a beige brownie thing. Um, We're never going to find out about it, are we? I mean, basically, Aaron Kinnett is not going to win a Moto2 uh, race until he gives up on the, uh, on the bow tie. I think maybe he should get another one tattooed, uh, you know, <laughs> across there. Then he wouldn't have to worry about it. It's a good idea, yeah, exactly. Um, someone was telling me, I mean, I, I personally like the bow tie, but I think the bow tie plus the glasses, the kind of comedy glasses, and then also the moustache. I mean, that's a lot going on there. <laughs> and uh, as someone, I think it was uh, Kel Buckley, my editor for Australian Motorcycle News, pointed out that Coco Chanel always said, before you go outside, you should take a look in the mirror and take one thing off. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think Aaron could follow that advice quite well. I think if he, uh, you know, he's, he looks at the tattoos and thinks that, then he's in big trouble because there's certainly a lot of action going on there as well. Um, but not to get too personal anyway. Um, Dave, uh, your moment of the weekend is, is also pretty obvious. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, there was a big crash at turn one. Um, we've seen a few really big crashes at turn one. Uh, the one that really springs to mind is... Uh, Loris Caparossi uh, or Ceci Gibbonau cutting across. Yeah, I mean, cutting across, uh, slamming into Loris Caparossi. Caparossi slammed into Marco Melandri and uh, caught his brake, uh, his brake lever. Um, oh, I think Sete uh, caught his brake lever. They all went down um, Sete's bike spiral out of control. It's a, it's a tricky position. And here we saw Takanakagami um, basically outbreak himself into turn one, uh, lost the front and rather horrifically smashed his sort of the front of his face into uh, the rear tire of Pekka Banyaya. That caused uh, Banyaya to crash. His bike took out uh, Alex Rince. Uh, there weren't very many people. Uh, I mean, we were quite lucky. There were very few people actually uh, um, affected. And the tack is more or less all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, tack, yeah, he, he is more or less all right. He was came away more or less uh, sort of uninjured, apart from the fact that he's in a lot of pain and he's got a, a sort of a, quite a lot of uh, bruising to the face and all the rest of it. He wasn't testing. Uh, very felt so very sorry for Alex Rins because he's fractured a, a bone in his wrist. Not certain he'll be fit for Saxon Ring. Uh, it's in his left wrist as well, so you really, you know, you mm. it's what really, really what you don't want if you go into the Saxon Ring or Assen. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the crash also looked pretty horrific. I mean, Zach's yeah. visor was ripped off. The the helmet seemed to partially disintegrate on the front end. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was an extremely violent. Uh, it was an extremely violent crash. And uh, after there was a huge amount of criticism for for Takanakagami. I'm not sure it was all justified. I went back and I watched the the, the crash from the helicopter shot several times. Uh, and actually, Taka made up most of his uh, places uh, from the start. So just in acceleration, he got a really good start. And so did Paul Espargaro, actually. From there, it gets a little bit sort of messier. Um, he turns, uh, he, he cuts across the nose of, of Paul Espargaro, 
And then he breaks, and when he breaks, um, just in that last part of breaking, he uh, you can see the front closed, and that's that's where it all goes. But it, I mean, it was. I mean, it was overly ambitious rather than reckless or dangerous. It was uh, also, I mean, of course, it destroyed Pekka Bonaya's race as well as Alex Rins, Dave. Um, I think we're all slightly shocked, as we mentioned, by the, the violence of the crash. I mean, Takara essentially smacked the rear wheel of, of the Ducati. But um, like you say, it was a narrow escape. And that will lead us on to one of our talking points a little bit later because I think, you know, um, I do feel that Alex Rins had a bit of a bee in his bonnet from Mugello anyway when the pair clashed. Um, and from what we were told that emerged from the, the safety commission when Rins brought up the incident, most of the riders said, listen, it was a racing incident. The attacker wasn't completely to blame for the accident. In this case, it seems that Rins had a little bit more ammunition to accuse. Um, he was very gracious and said, you know, he hoped that uh, Nakagami was okay while he's been taken to hospital, but he did point the finger and say, aggressive riding, he needs to know better. Um, and it did feel a little bit like, um, you know, he was being overly vilified because, you know, which rider on the, on the MotoGP hasn't been aggressive at some point or caused somebody else to crash. So, yeah. Um, you know, three very different talking points. Um, I'd also like to point out, who did you tip to win the race, Dave? I uh, picked, uh, I, I tipped Pekka Banyai to win. Um, and that didn't really work out. All right, Neil? I was also on the, the Banyai bandwagon. I thought he was going to get to the front at the first turn and piss off into the distance. But um, what do I know? Yeah, well, um, Fabio, just between you and I, there's still someone on the Paddock Pass podcast who believes in your abilities <laughs> and correctly predicted that you would be the race winner. Um, let's move on to sort of, you know, one of one of our talking points. Uh, I'd like to go with mine first. I, I, is anybody else going to win a Grand Prix? With the way that Fabio Quattararo is riding, we've seen Anaya Bastianini who had a nightmare of a Grand Prix, had to be said, well, the Grassini team had a pretty disappointing um, and... Yeah, I think, David, did you find out, was um, Fabio saying that his crash, uh, Digia that is, um, it was around the top of the circuit, turn 14, no, 13. Turn, no, turn 13. 13. Yeah, turn 13, top of the circuit, which is the... The right-hander. Uh, yeah, the first right-hander before the, uh, the, 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 the two long right-handers which come back onto the yeah. straight. Sadly, I think identified with Louis Salom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that point is the highest point of the track, and there was a bit more wind on Sunday. Uh, Friday and Saturday, there was no wind at all, and it it was horrendous because it was so stiflingly hot. Um, Sunday there was a bit of wind that made a, that made a difference, but unfortunately, um, it was it's a bit like uh, Jerez Turn Eleven. That's really famous for that, where the wind comes over and it just sort of takes it, it gets under your fairing and makes your front wheel a little bit light, and it's, it becomes really easy to wash out. That was basically what happened to Digi. It was a shame he was having a he was having a decent uh, some a decent decent race. Well, the way that Quattararo is performing, I mean, you rightly asked me at one point in the press room, you know, do we regard the Frenchman as another alien? Um, you know, do we put him in the same brackets, the likes of Casey Stoner, Mark Marquez, Valentino Rossi? I mean, it's looking more and more like a big yes. Uh, this victory last weekend uh, came on the same time where he confirmed another two years with Yamaha, that Yamaha confirmed a multi-year extension with Monster Energy. Um, you know, while you could argue that it's been a pretty dismal year on the whole for the brand, um, you know, the the combination with Quattro is stronger than ever and he just seems to be getting better and better and better in terms of the consistency of his performances. Think about the tracks coming up. 
Aston Saxon Ring were, you know, turning heaven. Uh, Silverstone, great track for him. It was his last win, I think, last year uh, on the way to the title. You know, uh, Quartararo could, he has a 66-point lead. Um, you know, Bagnaya chased him. Yes, over Bagnaya. Bagnaya, you know, he's going to need some sort of resurgence like he did last season to try and chip away at that. But uh, it's, he's, he's looking sort of so formidable. I just wonder if anybody else is really going to get much of a shout. I regret to inform you there are still 11 races left in the championship. Oh, Dave. <laughs> it's, um, uh, Fabio is riding absolutely fantastically, absolutely out of his skin. Uh, and again, he's riding flawlessly. It's reminiscent in a way of uh, Mark Marcus in 2019 in that he, uh, when he has bad days, you know, he's either on the podium or not far off the podium. Um, Although, I mean... Not necessarily. Like he was ninth in Qatar, he was seventh in Coda, he was eighth in Argentina. I mean, yeah, his, well, the, his those, bad days, the, yeah, but those are the first part of the the first part of the championship doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, they, but his bad days at the start of the year were quite pronounced. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But he still finished, and he still got um, he still got a whole haul of points uh, since then. I think he's been off the podium once. Uh, and that was a fourth. So it's it, he's really, really good. And the, he said something interesting in the uh, in the press conference. I asked him because obviously he's strengthened in breaking. You can see it. that's where he's making all of his ground. And he said um, when we have these compounds, these FC two compounds, uh, that's when he can make the difference. Now that's great that he tells us that because all this um, the codes, the tire codes which Michelin uses are uh, kept a complete mystery to us. But I asked about it and what Michelin said, yeah, it's part of a harder, um, it's, it's the harder compounds in their family. Uh, and what that means is generally harder compounds are a little bit harder to compress, so they give you more support so you can brake harder. And what Fabio is being able to do is just brake so much later than anyone else. And to do that at Barcelona, where there is no grip, um, it's the worst track on the calendar. Yeah, it, it's 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 literally below the standard required by the by by MotoGP. It is so uh, it is so bad. Um, so yeah, to be able to do that, to be able to do all that braking, because I mean, you really saw where he was strong right from the start, where he dived into the into the first corner. Um, his strategy was to get a good start, and he got a very good start. And then he just waited until Alicia Spargaro braked and then braked after him and, uh, and and took the lead. And then from there, he was just gone. And it really seems that if he has this the support from the front tyre to be able to brake, then he can perform well. The trouble is, there won't be every track where he will have this support from the front tyre. I'm not sure what kind, what kind of commands they'll be bringing. It generally, it's not as hard on the front tire, and so they might bring a slightly softer sort of selection of compounds, and then he might sort of struggle again. But I mean, he is putting together exactly the kind of season which you need to win a championship. Yeah, he really is. Um, I mean, you would say that he's probably riding better this year than last because last year, yeah, I wouldn't say the Yamaha was at such a disadvantage to the Ducatis and the Aprilias. Um, but he is sort of doing it all by himself. Um, and you look at the race on Sunday and it, there was hallmarks of Jorge Lorenzo, the way he started the race and then <clears throat> just took off from the first lap. I think his lead was around three or four tenths after lap one. It was up to seven tenths after lap two. Then lap three was like 1.2 ahead. Yeah. And up until lap 14, he was still doing one minute 40s while no one else could really get close to that. 
Um, it was just a total domination. Um, and yeah, and, and you know, it, it made you think about his comments on, on Friday. He said this in Magello as well, you know, it wasn't really that comfortable, wasn't that happy about his pace, almost as if he was trying to rule himself out a little bit. But then yeah. when you get to FP4, you see that actually, okay, yeah, he's, he's got pretty uh, good on, rhythm. On Friday, he was saying he was not competitive. I mean, we, we did the Paddock Pass podcast note show, Dave, and we were thinking, okay, well, who else is going to win? Um, yeah, and again, what we were talking about results earlier on in the season, um, a lot of people were saying to him, are you going to, they were expecting him to leave Yamaha. He was too much of a deficit and he's been repeating this mantra over and over that he's riding on the absolute limit of the M1. And you think that's going to bite him at some point. I mean, can you really go through another 11 races still doing performances like Barcelona? That's the, that's the big question. Um, Yamaha, Dave, I mean, you, you spoke with Lynn Jarvis in Jerez um, not too long ago uh, and they were making overtures and reassurances to Fabio Quattararo about what Yamaha will be doing to secure his services. Um, and, you know, they he was talking about it in the press conference. They're going to get extra engineers. There's going to be an extra onus on improving the package. Um, you kind of have to cross your fingers that that's going to be the case. But still, Quattararo is unbeatable on, on what he has now. Last year, Neil, like you said, he had um, a little bit more support from Maverick Vinales intermittently, um, you know, when Maverick wasn't blowing a mental gasket. Uh, so, I, I, in between Bagnaia's ability to forage a fantastic lap time in qualification and put himself right in contention from the beginning of races, um, I, I just struggled to see. And a case in point, sorry to drone on, but Alessio Spargaro, I mean, he spoke to us on Sunday and we only got two questions to him in English before he switched to Spanish. Um, he explained that Michelin advised him to overly... Be, well, be over-cautious with the tyres. And that's why Fabio Quattararo was able to exercise um, a degree of abandon and put those lap times down. And then Alesh suddenly found himself losing the race in the first five laps because the gap had been established and he was never going to get it back. And then he found himself defending from the Pramac Ducatis. So you do wonder why, you know, uh, while Spargaro has a lot of experience in the class, he doesn't have experience in race winning management um mm. so it's yeah, uh, that, something that's that's a really important point because um the experience of leading a race of uh, um of being able to win competing for podiums every week uh, you're doing a different kind of management you're also uh, I spoke to Peter Bomb about this before um uh, I think after the race you know about these tire compounds and he basically said like uh, you look at the tire list you know what you've got you know roughly how the weekend is going to go and then you can start to plan a championship and it's much easier to plan a championship if you're not living from race to race uh, hoping for a result um but you don't you don't start to think of it in terms of a championship you're not putting together uh, you know a campaign together you're really just like going into every race saying like we've got to try to to, to achieve something this weekend now fabio can go into a race and go okay we haven't got the tyres that we need. Uh, let's see, or well, not just Fabio, because I interviewed Lynn Jarvis this weekend, and one thing that Lynn, Lynn said was the group around him, um, uh, Diego Gublini and, 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 his, uh, and his data guy, they're really good. They are really, really good. That means that they're good at actually sort of putting, like I say, putting a campaign together, understanding that you know a championship is 20 races long. And I think... That you said it exactly right. That is that is where Aleish is struggling is to put it all together. And also in the last two weekends, Aleish has more or less admitted that Fabio at the moment is better in really crucial aspects of 
of racing. I mean, he said at Mugello, he really struggled to get past the two VR46 Ducatis when Fabio was, was able to do it aggressively. Um, he held his hands up and said, you know, Fabio is better at overtaking me today. And I don't know whether it was this weekend or maybe it was last, but he was saying also, he was asked about who's the best person with a full tank of fuel on fresh track with you know the Dunlop rubber down from the Moto2 race and he again was saying I think Fabio was the the guy at that and we saw again on Sunday that Aleish admitted afterwards like he had he was conserving his tires too much and that way Martin was able to get past him and once Martin got into second on the third lap I think we all knew that it was curtains basically Fabio would, was was already out of sight by then. Yeah, it, again, it is interesting that Fabio Quattararo's strength is the braking because it, exactly, I mean, like, how do you overtake? You pass people on the brakes. Um, what's really important with a full fuel, a full fuel tank, uh, it's being strong on the brakes. Uh, what other rider can we think of who's notoriously very good with the front brake? Uh, does he wear the number ninety three by chance? No, he. Well, he. That's another one. No, I was thinking one of an, in another championship who rides for the same ah. uh, for, for the same brand. I mean, it would be very interesting to see uh, top rack Raz Gatlioglu because this bike is built for Fabio Quartararo. Andrea Dovizioso was really interesting after the uh, after the test today. He was basically saying, like, um, yeah, I mean, we've asked Yamaha for some things. Um, but obviously we're lower priority than Fabio Quartararo. They're giving Fabio, they're trying to give Fabio what he wants, uh, because he's worth it. And I said, is that, is that not a risk putting all of your, uh, uh, sort of eggs in one basket like that? And he says, it's the shortest way to success. And if I was, yeah, if I was in their position, I'd do exactly the same. So it's, it's much cheaper and more efficient, um, and, uh, quicker to, you know, just keep handing, Fabio Quartararo money. To back Yeah, to back Yes, exactly. To back And this is exactly what they've done with Mark Marcus as well. This is why Honda has also had so much patience with, with Mark because if he comes back fit, and I really hope that he does because I really want to see uh, Fabio versus Mark both at their best, uh, both fit. Uh, I think it would be just spectacular. Um, then Honda know that that's their best chance of, win of winning a championship. It's much quicker, much more efficient than than trying to build a bike, which is good for everyone. But I mean, let's be honest. All weekend we thought Alesh was going to get this, you know, going to have this race in his pocket. I mean, there were similar conditions to Argentina. Uh, he was looking extremely comfortable with the low grip conditions, and uh, you know, he was just schooled really in, in how to win a Grand Prix by by Quasararo. Yeah, and you know, you, you said I kind of agree with you that maybe he's going to get bitten at some point by um, this bike because he is taking it to its limits. But he's finished every single race, and I don't have the exact numbers to hand the woman, but I'm pretty sure Fabio's had less than like five crashes this year. You know, this isn't Mark Marquez in 2017, 2018, 2019 when he's having 25 plus crashes a year. That's on the it, limit. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. Yes, he's he's taken the bike to the limits, but he's not. He knows where that limit is very clearly, yeah. and you know it's rare that he goes over it. So he's had a lot of point scoring rides, isn't he? Maybe he's take it all the way back through last season as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, all the, bar one. Yeah, well, yeah. Basically, again, like I keep saying, that's how you win championships. You win championships by scoring points, uh, scoring as many points as possible on your bad days. And that's, you know, that's he, he's, he's an absolute master at, uh, at doing that. One thing that I would say you were saying about, can anyone else come and put, lay a glove on him this year? Um, 
I still think there's four tracks at the end of this season that we haven't raced on since 2019 and the likes of Quattro was only one year MotoGP experience on, you know, the likes of Thailand, Australia, Malaysia, um, and Mategi. And, you know, just, who knows? Thailand 2019, I seem to remember being quite a good race. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but it's yes. a good shout now. I mean, but lack of experience, also lack of data. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I, I do also think that the next couple of races coming up, Germany, okay, last year, he wasn't great at Germany, but still salvaged third place. And the guys in front of him were Marquez and Oliveira. They're not going to be in front of him uh, next weekend. Um, and then Aston, I mean, you know, and Silverstone, you know, basically yeah. the two best tracks for the, M the M1. So um, he does have a chance by the time we get into mid-August to be yeah. really far ahead of the rest. I mean, it's stupid to say nobody else is going to win a race because anything can happen. I mean, look at Pekka Banyaya. I mean, his race lasted 10 seconds through no fault of his own. So that could easily happen to Quartararo. Um, but I just think, you know, his form is scary. So, um, but anyway, on the podcast here, we will not be finishing a lap early. We'll be right back after this advert break. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back. We're going to talk uh, about our latest discussion point from the Grand Prix of Catalonia. Dave, um, the incident with Alessia Spargaro actually prompted a couple of interesting questions to riders. Um, and it's not, it's, it's something that seems very common sense. You know, how do you know a race is finished? But um, there was actually quite a variety of different answers. And it was a... Uh, an interesting discussion point once it got the ball rolling with these guys. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. there's the old adage about there not being any stupid questions. And this is one of those things which you take completely for granted. You know, how do you know when, the, when, when a race is finished? Uh, I mean, I asked it, the question in the press conference and Fabio Quattraro looked at me in absolute disbelief. Um, <laughs> or disdain? Probably a little bit of everything. <laughs> and basically said, you know, when they wave the checkered flag, which is, of course, the correct answer. Um, but they're not all just riding around sort of waiting until someone waves a checkered flag. There's a strategy to the race. You know, it, it's actually sort of taking time to to, to put all of these things together. Um, you, you have to, you, you know, you, you have to understand it. And there are circumstances where, like the scoring tower at um, uh, in Barcelona, where they're counting down the laps, and in Barcelona they count down the last lap is lap zero, not lap one. Uh, whereas actually the stewards also hold out a lap count board again counting down and the last one there is lap one so it's um it, it can be quite confusing there's lots of different ways which riders do it they have it on their dashboard but they don't trust their dashboard because sometimes the dashboard can get confused 
you know, they have a lap countdown. Um, it can get confused if you run off track, if you miss a timing loop, uh, if you do something strange on the warm-up lap. Or it just malfunctions. Or it just, yeah, exactly. Or it just malfunctions. There's, there's all sorts of, uh, all sorts of things can go wrong that way. So they look at it sometimes and, but they can't trust it. Uh, they always look at their, uh, pit board, but when they can see it, when they can see it, if you are in a group of four riders, uh, and you just got involved in a really big battle in the last corner, uh, then it can be very difficult, especially as Alicia Spargaro's uh, uh, case was, that when your pit board is the first on the uh, on pit wall, um, it's much more difficult to look across at it. Um, and you've got lots of things on your mind. And like I say, 24 laps is a long, long race. You know, you're racing for basically 45 minutes. You can't go... It's not just flat out from start to finish and especially not at a racetrack like uh, Barcelona where you have to manage the, 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 the spin of the rear tyre because otherwise you just chew through your rear tyre in no time so you're having to think about okay these few laps I can push a little bit harder now I've got to back off a little bit um, you have to know where you are you have to know how, you know, how, how soon the, the race is going to, be, uh, to end so you're keeping sort of a, a, you have to have a vague idea of what it was and then you have to rely on something to tell you there are this many laps uh, laps to go and like I said earlier I think in this case, um, Alicia Spargaro's local knowledge sort of cost him a little bit because it, a lot of the Catalan riders, when you ask them, you know, well, how do you know when a race is finished? They were saying, well, um, uh, here, yeah, I look at the scoring board, a scoring tower, because I because I know it's up on the scoring tower. Um, whereas if you ask the non-Spanish riders, they were sort of like saying, "Oh no, no, I I look at my lap, you know, I look at the pit board, or I look at the stewards." Um, but I think it was uh, sorry to cut across you. I think it was Jan Zarco who said that he doesn't bother looking at the lap counter on the pit board until there's it's coming down to six, five, four, three, two, one. Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. But I mean, you still have to know that it's going to be 24 laps and not 27 laps or 20 laps. So it's, yeah, I mean, you have to know roughly where you are in the race before you start to look, and then you have to start to pay uh, pay attention. But the other thing as well is if you're just looking for the checkered flag on some tracks, they're just behind the pit wall, yeah. uh, ground level, and other circuits have like a stanchion coming out across. And what's curious about the circuit, the Catalonia, is I'm sure there used to be a race platform where they waved the checkered flag. There is. There there still is, but it's right at the start of the... uh, Yes. It's right at the start, again, because the finish line, again, this is another curious thing about Barcelona, is there is a big gap between the start line and the finish line. Uh, The the start line is probably 100, 200 metres further along than the finish line, and the finish line is right on corner exit. So um, you don't get a lot of... time or space to actually see the finish lag flash whereas for example Mugello it's a long way down the um, uh, uh, down the straight so there's plenty of time to see it and the other thing that some of the riders said was they also get a message on their dashboard sort of thing after the race uh, but well, it says it flashes red yes it, it fla- yes it flashes saying session finished um, but then also the uh, the point I want to make is that the circuit the Barcelona Catalonia had a new pit wall or po- uh, the fencing was new for the Formula 1 so yeah. it was much higher so therefore, that also could have obscured slightly the, the, the side. Yeah, it makes it flag. a little bit more difficult to actually lean out and, and, and be waving, yeah. uh, waving a flag. I think it was Darren Binder who has said that he, even when he sees the checkered flag, he still was going flat out until the first corner of the next lap just in case. I yeah. Mean, you know, it's, it's strange how riders have a different kind of mentality when it comes to, you know, finishing a Grand Prix, unless it's evident. Yeah, I mean, 
you have to say that uh, Alice is in good company. Like through the years, like a lot of fairly high-profile riders have uh, made the same mistake. Obviously, Julian Simon made it this track in his championship year in 2009 um, when he sat up and celebrated coming across the line, gifted the race to Ian O'Neill. For exactly the same reason, because uh, because he was looking at the lap counter at the top. And again, Julian Simon, I think, is is, is local to, uh, to to Barcelona. Exactly, yeah. And uh, curiously, apparently, his, uh, the guy that was doing his pit board on that particular day now works at a pretty for a leash. So I <laughs> <laughs> don't know whether that's a bad, uh, a bad omen or not. But, um, but yeah, even on Sunday, you had, I think, Sergio Garcia yep. misjudged his lap count uh, in the Moto3 race. He thought he had an extra lap. Uh, more than than he actually had, and that's why he didn't make uh, more aggressive moves on. Uh, I think it was David Munoz and Tatsuki Suzuki ahead of him um, to get second. So um, it's a it's a curious one at this track. Wasn't didn't Tiso Rabat miss time something at Valencia as well one year where he didn't uh, he didn't anticipate the the checkered flag. Alex Rins did it uh, at Brno um, a few years back. Kenny Roberts Jr. is one of the most famous ones, Estoril 2006. Yeah. Uh, in the, in that fantastic race with um, uh, Tony Elias and Valentino Rossi. Um, uh, yeah, uh, that was quite the race uh, in the end. Um, um, yeah, when Rainey did it at uh, Suzuka in 1989. Uh, but again, he thought he had an extra lap and he didn't move on Schwantz. Um, into the final chicane and then McDoon did it famously at Nürburgring in 96 also when he was fighting with I think um, with Catalora but again that was he thought he had an extra lap when he didn't and therefore he was just sitting behind thinking I'm going to make my move and oh there's the checkered flag so yeah it's, it's, it's most curious to to see it actually, you know, celebrating and, and, and like I say this is I mean I felt uh, on the one hand, I felt really sorry for Leish because it is absolutely terrible when these things happen. On the other hand, it was quite funny, and I did laugh. <laughs> um, but the, but like I say, the, the most the fascinating thing is it's one of those things you don't think about. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when is the race over? The race is over when the when the flag is checkers flag is waved. But it's a long race, and you have to figure out when you know when you expect the checkered flag to be waved. Uh, and it's that one of those things that you just don't think about as an outsider as someone who doesn't race uh, it's something you don't think about until it happens and then you get a chance to think oh yeah hang on how do you know the race is is over so i i found it really enlightening just going around and asking the you know the stupid question how do you know the race is finished it's uh it's, well we definitely know what Alesh is going to be asked about in his first media debrief in saxon ring <laughs> next thursday um you know how's... how many laps <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a good point because Saxon Ring has the most amount of laps in the whole calendar. I think it's the- yeah. I mean, you know, a little abacus in the uh, in the front there, just moving the balls over as he crosses the lap. Or maybe they could have a mechanic with a set of balloons and he could let yeah. one off as he goes by every lap. Um, on the subject of misjudgment, Neil, um, something you wanted to talk about was the uh, the rap that the the stewards, the race direction, had again um, over the judgment for the the Nakagami incident. Um, it seems to flag up a little bit of um, consternation some riders have been having on the way decisions are made, how quickly they're made, and the ramifications. Um, what did you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, another uh, talking point from the day, really. Um, obviously, Alex Rins and Francesco Bagnaia, the two guys that were punished for Takenakagami's uh, wayward kind of movements at the first corner, um, basically came on and, and criticised uh, the FIM stewards that um, 
decide on penalties for these kind of incidents. And I think it was just it was quite an interesting uh, an interesting topic. Um, I mean, both of those guys were saying that uh, the current level of stewarding in uh, in the World Championship isn't at the required level for MotoGP. It should um, they either need uh, rethinking, they need more consistency, or they need new personnel. Um, fairly strong words. Um, but by the same token, they've kind of alluded to it earlier. Um, you know, I don't think it was an absolutely chronically, um, yeah, it wasn't outrageous, outrageously stupid thing that, yeah. uh, that Nakagami did, um, going into the first turn. Um, you know, you look at what happened, um, from him off the start. I mean, it, it was clear that someone was saying, I think it was Jorge Martin was saying that the Hondas have, have done something quite intelligent with the, the starting device because Paul Spargo and Nakagami had made up I think basically two rows um, they both started in the fourth row and I think they were entering fourth and fifth into turn one um, and you know Taka was fourth I think when he was sort of midway through uh, breaking phase and then he seemed to get a bit crossed up that's when he locked, he tucked the front so it wasn't as if he kind of like torpedoed someone from miles back like we saw at Mategi a couple of years ago uh, turn one there um, but I think do I mean you know do, does he deserve a penalty I think you know he probably did on this occasion because it was still pretty irresponsible the fact that he crashed and got all crossed up and almost got quite nervous by the fact that he was so far up the track I think that was maybe I mean, it wasn't it wasn't great, was it? Um, at such a critical point of the track, which is dangerous and has historically seen some ugly crashes, um, and you know, it's just so. I, I, I do think that he does deserve at least some kind of penalty, and I think it, it contrasts to just some of the decisions that we've seen recently with the FIM stewards and with with um, you know Freddie Spencer, who kind of heads up that group. Look at Mugello, for example, with. Um, Dennis Onju and Tatsuki Suzuki in the Moto3 race. Um, they kind of were going for the same bit of tarmac coming out of turn one. They collided, Onju went down, but it didn't necessarily look like Suzuki was doing anything ragged or unsporting on that particular occasion, yet he copped a long lap penalty. And I think it's this kind of inconsistency that we see. I know that you have to treat almost every incident separately, and they have to use their their ideas for that, but I think... On occasion, we do see a bit too much inconsistency with uh, with some of the stewarding, and um, you know, maybe the it's understandable why some of the riders are maybe a bit concerned. Yeah, the other <coughs> thing is, or the impression I got from the riders is, especially about Taka, is that um, you know this isn't the first time there was the incident in, in Mugello. Uh, what was interesting was Rin, Alex Rins was saying, you know, look, I showed we talked about it in the safety commission. I showed it to everyone, and half were saying. Um, you know, it was Taka's fault. Half were saying it was your fault. Most were saying it was a racing incident. Um, but there was a lot of criticism of Nakagami's riding, that he was consistently dangerous. And this, I think, is the race direction's biggest failing, that they don't uh, punish patterns of behavior, if you like. They treat each incident separately unless you have a prior punishment. So as soon as you get uh, a penalty then that is held against you in the future. But if you haven't had a penalty, um, then, you know, each t- you get a new chance yeah, it's every like week. like a warning. So, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I know it leads to inconsistency, Dave, but isn't it better to have a, you know, kind of almost an independent review of each incident as you go along? Almost like a football referee is not going to be showing yellow cards every two minutes for every foul in a, in a football match. Yeah, but there are varying degrees the, of incident. Well, that is the, uh, that's the idea with the FIM stewards. I mean, there's a, a, the race direction, um, again, a lot of riders were criticizing race direction when it wasn't really race direction it was the stewards that they were that they wanted because the stewards aren't responsible for uh, the stewards responsible for judging penalties race direction is in charge of running the race there's a lot of people in race direction who review every single incident from lots of angles and um, if they think there is any doubt, any doubt at all, it goes up to the stewards. Um, the stewards then look and make a decision on it. Uh, in this case, uh, they decided against it. Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, would it be better to have some kind of a warning system? I think it would be better to have some kind of a, war, a, a warning system. But the, I mean, the whole issue goes back to Sepang 2015 so basically it's Valentino Rossi's fault because we couldn't do one podcast without you bringing that up could we <laughs> we could not uh, there was the, the the clash between Marquez and uh, uh, Rossi at the time uh, it was still just race direction you know the race director was there to judge uh, Mike, Mike Webb, Webb. Um, that was probably the highest pressured decision he, he or anyone in race direction has ever had to face um afterwards there was a, a you know the two most powerful riders in MotoGP um went to race direction to discuss it and to uh, uh, to debate what happened and all the rest of it and um after that they started to split things out they were they they set up a separate panel to actually review incidents and leave uh, race direction you know race direction to get on with it then it was the race director and then eventually they replaced that with the FIM stewards one of the criticisms also was that you know Freddie Spencer was a great racer but he hasn't raced a motorbike for 40 years um, and they really need someone with uh, I think it was Alex Rins said, you know, modern experience on a modern MotoGP bike. Yeah, I mean, uh, Rins was fully venting, wasn't he? No, uh, yeah, but, but, but I mean, Alex Rins was properly was properly livid, and I can, uh, you know, I can understand it in his uh, in his situation. But I, I just don't feel that they're doing that bad a job. I don't know. It seems a contrast to maybe a season or two ago where we were seeing Moto Three penalties handed out a ridiculous rate. Um, even also post-race, we went through a sequence where the the race classification was being altered every week. Yeah, but I mean, yes, it did take... They have got a bit better in that, but they're still... Uh, I think they're still being a bit um, unclear. And the, the, the point is there is very... There is an absolute feeling of inconsistency because you never know what's going to get a penalty and what's not, not going to get a penalty. They they never um, uh, the stewards never speak to the press. They never explain. Uh, well, there was there yeah. was a there was you know a, a brief statement at the bottom of the uh, MotoGP pre, uh, MotoGP press release after the after the race. Um, but you know the, it doesn't feel like there's any accountability. There's no explanation. No, would they benefit from having? Just uh, somebody from the stewards coming down to talk to the media for ten minutes after every Grand Prix, and if there was no nothing to ask, then you know you're there for two minutes. But otherwise, you might face an inquiry about a particular incident throughout the weekend. Yeah, yeah, I think they've maybe or, or Dorna has made the point in the past that 
they don't have time enough time in the day to explain every single thing that they've had to do or had to judge on, make a judgment on, which is absolutely fair enough. However, maybe with some of the bigger judgments that we've had that have really affected the outcome of a race, I think maybe do deserve a five-minute explanation. And I'm not even saying, like, come down to the press office, even just, like, stand in front of a camera and be filmed and let us watch the, the contents of that film, you know, because I think we mentioned before, you know, the, the, some of the thinking behind um, Mike Webb's decisions when he was race director and he was responsible for these penalties, you would think, oh, what's in the race? That's maybe not the best thing. But then when you spoke to him afterwards and understood his reasoning, you would think, I actually see your point of view. That is uh, quite a different way of thinking and quite eloquently expressed. Yeah, I mean, um, but, because we used to be able to just walk into his office to to, to ask him about it. And, the, the, I mean, the point was we could walk into his office and, and ask him about it because he knew we would only be up there once, maybe, maybe three times a year because there was something very specific. And it was never a problem. And Mike is just a, an incredibly thoughtful and was always very careful at explaining exactly what what he was doing. Um so, to me, that was the ideal way of doing it. I understand it can be a bit difficult. I think all, what Dorna have done quite well is they have been making this series of um, uh, video interviews where the race director explains, okay, this is why, this is this is how we decide all of these things, and then there'll be an incident, and usually a week later there'll be a video out saying uh, this is the this is the interview we did. They've also made an enormous amount of work for themselves with, for example, track limits and stuff. There is now so much. A video to review um, that it becomes very very difficult. I mean, if, if you think about how, intensive, yeah, if you yeah exactly yeah, if you think about how many penalties we get on a Sunday morning, especially from Moto Three, because a whole bunch of people have been uh, following each other or exceeding track limits or God knows what else. You know, places like Misano where um, you know there are the, the thirty. Uh, Moto3 riders will all do sort of 20 laps in practice and there will be perhaps six laps which didn't involve a track limit uh, uh, a warning. So, yeah, it's it, they have made an enormous amount of work for themselves and, and that's that's meant they've got no more time to do these. And I think it's for the, to the detriment of the series. They, the race direction really need a, uh, a PR uh, offensive. And I think it's been pointed out quite a few times in F1, they provide a press release with um, full explanation. Um, and I'm not saying, again, that this should be a thing which um, it, it is explained for every little um, misdemeanor that happens in a race. Um, and yes, they did actually provide an explanation in a press release on Sunday. But I think that needs to be a regular thing because we haven't really seen that so often with previous penalties or lack of penalties that have been given out. Well, I'm going to issue my own gagging penalty to David and Neil while we have a quick uh, break and then we'll be back straight afterwards to hear from Cameron Bobia and also pick our winners and losers from the Grand Prix de Catalunya. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. 
Bandit Pass podcast is back. Uh, we're going to stop talking for a moment because we spoke to Cameron Bobia for our very first rental street session of the season. And here is what the American had to say about some of his progress in his second Moto2 year. Cam, so thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, it's great to talk to you, even though we're both getting a bit sweaty here in Mugello. Um, first off, what's it like to, to ride a Moto2 bike around here? Because we see Mugello on the TV. Um, you've ridden it a couple of times, of course, so it's not completely new to you. But um, it must be pretty thrilling as race circuits go. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, Mugello, man, it's it's a really beautiful track it's a really cool track i tell people like they ask me what my favorite track is over in here over over in europe and stuff like that uh just from back home and i tell them like even though i struggled pretty bad here especially last year i struggled all all weekend long friday saturday and then was able to put a good result together in the race uh with an eighth but man i something about this track is so hard to learn because it's pretty fast uh, there's a lot of like fast rolling flowy corners and a lot of uh, a lot of blind rises and stuff like that where like you yeah you you come over a rise and and uh, you can break a little later to make up some time but like there's just a fine line here of, of being too aggressive on the brakes and uh, and and just like letting the bike flow so it's a pretty tricky track and not going to lie, just getting a toe around this place is, makes it makes life a lot easier. Um, but it is just like a beautiful track. Like I was saying, I, this is one of those tracks where if you could just come ride, do like a track day and get, get a handful of buddies together, like this would be the place I'd pick. Cause it's just such a, such a iconic track, you know, you're yeah. rolling through the, the Tuscany Hills and all that. And it's, it's a really cool place. Um, we're here talking for the rental street sessions. I mean, I know you're a big off-road rider yourself. You love your motocross. Uh, any experience using rental bars in the past? Um, yeah, actually. I, I like the uh, the Renthal 997 bend. And uh, to be honest, that's the first thing I do on a dirt bike. I, I When I when I get a new dirt bike, and luckily I have I was able to get, you know, riding for Yamaha for so many years, I was able to to get a new 450 pretty much every year which is which is pretty cool and uh yeah that's the first thing i'd swap out is uh is bars so yeah i i really like the the rental bars well listen i mean we're here to talk about moto 2 uh, and your, your current job um it's uh, i guess being in your second season it, it, everything must be coming a little easier a little quicker to you because not only did you have to get your head around the bike last year but also the, the whole different circus and I think it's been clear to everyone watching this year that with the results, the lap times, the speed and everything, things are coming much faster to you. Is, is that the case? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's definitely tough every weekend. You know, it feels like it's just like an uphill battle every single weekend. But I think that's just the nature of this class. But uh, definitely putting to use like all the work we did last year, the ups and downs we had and yeah, just coming coming to all these tracks and knowing where I'm going, uh, being able to look at some data and you know what gears and and just everything I was doing last year uh, is a real big help to me. And just rolling out, honestly, just rolling out more confident in first practice when all these guys are are you know within a second of the lap record pace in first practice is uh, it's a lot better this year rather than last year going to a new track and, and just scratching my head after first practice, just being like, how the heck am I going to be competitive <laughs> this weekend? So, um, it's been better. Uh, it's still been pretty tough, you know? Um, it's just incredible how competitive this class is really. And just, just how fast everyone is. Um, 
you know, I said it before, I'll say it again. I mean, obviously these guys are the, <laughs> the best guys in the world. And if you're just a tick off, you're just, you're way down the timesheet. So, um, it was really confidence inspiring being able to, you know, put the, put my bike on pole in Coda, a uh, track I obviously know well. And then obviously, yeah, being able to, to qualify up front in Portugal, we've had some, I'd say we've had a little drought of bad luck just with, uh, you know, what happened in Portugal with everyone going down there and then Coda, I get to the last, I mean, for example, Coda, I was, had a really good weekend the whole, pretty much the whole weekend up until the race and then had a handful of, uh, of false neutrals. And to be honest, I was pretty bummed with riding around in, in fourth place there at the end. Um, but I mean, it was going to be my best result of, of, of the year, but it's just, it was the circumstance, you know, I put it on pole. I knew I could, I was fast in practice and I knew I had a really good shot at, uh, at the podium. Um, so it's, it's fun. You can, I mean, you can look at it any, any which way, but, uh, we've definitely been consistently faster in practice and been upped our game in qualifying, which is a big, big key in this class. And, uh, still got a long way to go but um i'm happy with happy decently happy with the way it started can you describe to people what it's like to race the moto 2 bike because now you must be very familiar with it you must make it feel more like your own i mean you rode some pretty advanced stuff you know and superbike and did incredibly well so you know i imagine last year it was a little bit of a puzzle trying to get this machine to your liking is, is it, but what's it like as a palette is it quite easy to adjust to what you want or is it a bit more complicated than that um, to be honest, these things are so adjustable. There's so many things you can do to this bike and they're very finicky from what I've, I've learned just, uh, just I mean, wheelbase to, to ride height, to, uh, rake in the front in and out and, um, swing arm angle. There's just so much you can do to these things. And I feel like last year we've learned the hard, hard way, just trying to change the thing too much. Uh, struggling with something and then making a change and then going out and not really riding it to the level like pushing on it as hard as as I would if I was comfortable and I knew knew the bike so this year we've definitely taken like a, a little bit different of of an approach we've got our bike Stu's got the bike in uh just in 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 like the ballpark and we make you know subtle changes here and there and i really think that's that's the key in this class you don't want to be changing changing too much yeah because i think people have the idea that moto 2 is very much a stock class i mean if you want to pull a crude kind of comparison you could say it's a nascar version of, of bikes you know in grand prix level um did you kind of have that impression before you came to moto 2 and and do you are you surprised by actually how many kind of options you do have with a bike I was I was pretty surprised with how many options we have to just chassis changes and stuff like that. We're pretty restricted on um, we we have like just a set engine brake map that we can we have some that we can cycle through, um, a couple throttle maps stuff like that. And man, coming from a superbike, we can it was like corner by corner where there's traction control, wheelie control, and we can change it all like I said, corner by corner to, to really get the most out of, out of the package. We, yeah, it's, uh, so that's been a, a little bit tough getting used to. Um, but to be honest, like when I first came over here last year, the bike was pretty, I mean, I was surprised that like how easy I picked it up at first. 
Um, but then, you know, you start falling down and, and you kind of lose a little trust in the bike. And for me, that's when, that's when things got tough is like rebuilding your trust with the bike and, and, and stuff like that. Um, it seems like that last second on this thing is so hard to find. And I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily see that coming over here, how difficult it would be like riding without rider aids, like traction control and, uh, and you know, like some torque maps and stuff like that. And that I've relied on so much in the past on the superbike. And not only that, just, just the way you ride the bike, you know, you, there's a reason why these guys hang off so far to, to get the thing to pull around the corner. And, um, I've had to change my riding style a little bit towards that way. And it's really hard as a rider to go out and think about your riding style, you know, when you're trying to go fast, like when you're, when you're out on track, you don't want to worry about that. You just want to worry about going as fast as you can and, and, uh, and kind of gathering some information to come back in and tell, tell Stu to, to, uh, to, you know, improve in some areas. So, um, that's definitely been, been a little tough. Yeah. Just the way, even just the way you, you come off the gas and stuff like that, like on a super bike, we were just talking about it upstairs, um, on what we can do better tomorrow, but there's some sections in this track with some chicanes and on a super bike, you know, you would, you would let it breathe, like roll off the gas and really rely on like the engine brake of the bike and like, and let it pull you in the corner. But these things just don't like that. Like they don't want to move around too much. And, uh, they're, they're definitely a little bit more fidgety, but I'd say, I mean, obviously we've come a long way with the riding, my riding style and, uh, I'm really starting to, you know, learn, learn this bike. And for example, like Le Mans, I, I, I felt like I was able to just ride the thing hard and just, and feel good on it. Coda, Portugal. And, um, I just want that feeling at, at all the other tracks. I mean, there's so, obviously so far you can go in terms of performance, but you know, when it comes to ergonomics and your feeling on the bike, I mean, you mentioned changing of style. Is that, is there kind of much room for interpretation in that aspect? Um, yes, we, we can run some different tank caps to either put you a little bit more forward or back in the seat. And from a superbike, just being used to like a bigger tank, I've chose the one that puts you a little bit further back in the seat, which I like. Um, and just like riding the superbike for so many years, like you spend a lot of time up on the tank and you have, you have like that support, you know, and there's been a couple times where we go back to the smaller, the smaller spec tank. Uh, tank cover, just trying to, you know, change up my style to be able to hang off a little bit more, but I always revert back to the, to the bigger one. We've also messed just with, you know, foot peg adjustment going, going up just to see if I could get a little more leverage to hang off the thing a little bit more. And, uh, it all kind of comes back to just trying to get me to pick the bike up a little bit more, getting off the, the corners. Um, it's really easy in this class, especially when you're when you're struggling on time and you're trying to, you're trying to improve on time is just to go crazy on the brakes and break late and try to make up your time like that. But that's not how these things want to be ridden. They, they want to just, they want to be in line, slowed down and it's all, you know, it's all about the exit. So, um, yeah, it's been, been a little bit tough, you know, coming from a superbike background, but we've, we've been making good progress. Lastly, Cameron, don't get annoyed with me now, but I'm asking you about, your future MotoGP. I mean, this is your sophomore year in Moto2. Do you think, you know, would it be fantastic to 
to keep progressing in Moto2 or, you know, do you, is the patient starting to wear a little bit thin for perhaps a, an opportunity elsewhere? Or how's your kind of feeling midway through 2022? Yeah, uh, man, that's a tough one. I, I feel like this year we've really progressed at just as a team and everything and things are, are starting to come together over here. Um, obviously I got, you know, a ways to go. I, I, I want to be more competitive in this class and stuff like that moving forward. Um, and obviously, I mean, it's every, every guy's dream to, to race a MotoGP bike, you know, and, and, and obviously that's what I want to do. And, uh, it's tough though, man. Like I'm already 20, 29 years old, just to be, just to be honest and, and realistic. I'm already 29 years old. Um, there's just so much that the, the depth of, of talent in this paddock across the board is just, it's incredible. So well, Val- Valentino's think- age range, you got another 13 yeah. years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't, Yeah. Right. Exactly. But, uh, I do think that, um, I have earned some respect just jumping over here after, you know, not knowing the tracks and all that stuff. Yeah. I raced the tracks, what, 12 years ago or something like that. But it's, it's, I mean, obviously it's a different time on a different bike and stuff like that. And coming from Moto America, um, I do think I earned some, some respect, um, being able to get up to speed as quick as I, I, I have, I would like to think so. Um, so yeah, we'll see what the future holds, but Right now, I'm you know I'm happy with what I'm doing, but uh, yeah. To answer your question, I would love to be in MotoGP. It'd be it'd be it'd be amazing. Listen, Cameron, thanks for joining us for this rental street session. Uh, best of luck for the race tomorrow. All right, thanks, man. Okay, guys, that was great to hear from Cameron. There, uh, let's quickly wrap up. You know, some of our winners and losers from round nine of MotoGP this year. Dave, uh, you're winner pick is is pretty fairly obvious what else can you just tell us about the grand prix winner uh yeah i mean yes but who is the winner fabio quartararo because he's i think he took a massive step towards the championship this year this race weekend not just because uh he won the race uh and because his rivals got taken out i think if it would have been interesting to see Pekka Banyaya racing uh, Fabio, but I don't think Pekka Banyaya could have beaten it. Could have beaten him. I think. Uh, I think he would have ended up second. I think there would have been a battle between Pekka and, and Aleish for uh, for second and third, and that would have been very interesting to watch. But um, uh, yeah, announcing his new contract. I think the most important thing there. I spoke to um, uh, Lin Jarvis at Barcelona as well, and he said that uh, Jerez he'd already been able to persuade. Uh, Fabio that you know they would build the bike for him you know they would be putting the resources into giving him a competitive uh, uh, a competitive machine so I think the the contract signing the perhaps the reason he's the big winner this weekend it's not just because he took a big step towards you know his second championship but also he took a big step towards uh, more championships in the future Dave, three rapid-fire questions for you. Is Lynn Jarvis at the point now where he sees you and he wants to turn around and run the other way? <laughs> uh, no, but I did try to talk to him at Mugello and I wasn't able to talk to him at Mugello. Um, I was told he wasn't available, but he did talk to me uh, in Barcelona. So um, uh, not yet, but it might still happen. Second question, do you have Fabio Quattararo in your fantasy team? I can't 
blooming affording. Um, I uh, made a very, I made a, I made the wrong decision. I've got a whole bunch of Ducatis in my uh, in my team. I've got to figure out a way of selling some people so that I can get him in. Well, that leads on to my third question. You're a programmer, so could you break into the Dawn of Fantasy League thing and swindle it somehow? Uh, but if I had enough spare time, no, I wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm going to go next. My winner um, to give Yamaha some credit, Darren Binder, because. Uh, finishing 12th i think amongst the rookies uh the vault he's made from moto 3 straight into moto gp he's clearly lacking a whole bunch of references and experience um you know but he's seems to me to be showing the right amount of progress to be standing out uh he you would look at him as a genuine rookie that's that's advancing in the class um in terms of his performances um his maturity and the way just in his dealings and talking with us you know he's He's very humble about the task that he has ahead, but I think he's showing decent enough speed. And again, he was the second best Yamaha, you know, to to classify. I mean, he he's showing up Franco Morbidelli, and we know very well about his um his credentials. So, um, fair play to Darren. Uh, the counterpoint to that is that um, yes, he was twelfth, I think, um, but five riders uh, crashed out ahead of him, uh, and he was. 30 seconds behind Fabio, whereas... Sorry? 32. 32. Uh, whereas in Magella, he was 20-something, just the 20 seconds. So he's there is still a massive gap. First time in Catalonia on a MotoGP bike. First time handling Michelin's in that grip level. You've got to give him some credit. And also, I don't, oh, subscribe, no, I, I re- I don't subscribe to that. Oh, the, all these riders crashed out. Well, he stayed on the bloody bike. That's <laughs> half the job. <laughs> that, is, that, that, that is a very good point. Um, and uh, yeah, I, like I am impressed. He is doing a really good job. He is doing exactly what he should be doing. He is making he's doing sort of showing the progress that he should be showing um but the gap is still quite large he's doing a good job i'm I'm really impressed with darren binder i think what he's had to do this year has not been easy and he's certainly made a um, a step forward from um mugello but i think you have to also look at it that yes he'd be franco mobidelli but that i think says a little bit more about franco mobidelli at this moment than darren binder yeah, I mean, I don't know what's happened to Franco Morbidelli, but I'm just hoping that the aliens who kidnapped the the real for Franco Morbidelli will be turning up to give him back sometime soon. Yeah, I mean, he really needs to start doing some magic tricks or cracking a few gags in his media debriefs as well because he's getting kind of Maverick Minialis, Yamaha, end of the Yamaha era kind of uh, depression levels and um, degree of worry, isn't it? Uh, if he looks somewhat lost. Yeah, don't look at me. Look at the man sat across from me. Yeah, <laughs> his little contretemps that he had with Franco was actually quite funny on Saturday. Yeah, well, I, uh, well yes. I mean, Franco is uh, genuinely—he uh, really is giving off. I mean, like even uh, even Maverick Vinales was easier to deal with than than Franco at the moment. Franco is Franco's always a little bit sort of um, uh, warrior poet style. Um, he sort of comes out with these little uh, enigmatic uh, uh, sayings and uh, and things, and you sort of go away and wonder if he said anything. And now he, his enigmatic uh, uh, little poems are becoming almost monosyllabic and quite irritating. Uh, Neil, is your winner the man, the possessor of the finest nickname ever known in MotoGP history? Why, yes, it absolutely is, Adam, and I'm not just choosing him for your uh, pleasure <laughs> uh, because he actually had a fine race on Sunday. Uh, Mark Nitner's back. That's what I wanted to say. Um, it was a great ride from him. Um, he said that uh, 
basically from Hereth, I think it was. Um, he started using a setting that was very similar to Peckle by Nyai, basically had no front feeling. Um, and he basically lost all sort of confidence with the front end. Um, felt completely on the limit with it. But um, I think at the behest of his Owens technician, um, on Friday in Barcelona, they went back to a setting from the start of the year and it just seemed to give him his confidence back. Um, and he was immediately breaking later, breaking stronger and um, just looking like the Jorge Martin we saw regularly in the second half of last year. Um, also, not just the fact that he finished second, but also I think over the weekend, Paolo Ciabatti said that Ducati might not make the decision regarding who will be Pekka Bagnaia's teammate in the factory team next year until after the summer break, maybe August. Originally, it was going to be made after this weekend or during this weekend in Mugello. Um, but it seems that they're maybe willing to push that back a little bit and that could also play into Jorge's hands as well because Bastianini had a tough weekend, crashed off the second race in succession. If Martin can put a few decent races together, get a couple more podiums, you know, suddenly you have to think he's back in the mix for being a potential factory man next year well he still has to go for surgery and that's something we've been saying all along well, that he he's... went today okay so then we have to find out if that's worked and you know if he's uh, still going to be dealing with a sleeping right hand or whatever the issue was in Le Mans and that sets us up Dave really for your uh, loser because you know there is of course the tug of war for the second Ducati seat um, you know, going on, and it wasn't a great weekend for your loser. Uh, it wasn't a great mo- weekend for my uh, loser. Uh, and Aya Bastianini, I mean, so far he's been sort of up and down and up and down, but uh, he's generally bounced back after a bad weekend. But you know, he crashed out in Mugello, uh, he's crashed out again here. Um, he said he didn't really have an explanation for why for why he crashed. I mean, uh, I think it, I think it was one of the left handers where he crashed. So it was just you know asking too much of the tire. Um, yeah, he didn't have a great, a particularly fantastic qualifying either. Anaya Bastinini is very much up and uh, up and down. When everything comes together, he's just astonishing. Um, but not everything comes together all the time. And I think this is going to be a problem for Ducati going forward because they have all of this talent, but all of them have exactly the same flaw, which is uh, they're either brilliant or they're useless. And um, what they really need is riders who are either brilliant or just very, very good. And that's that's the real problem uh, at the moment. Then again, you know, this is what Bastini's second season. Um, there is room to grow there. I perhaps it would be better for him to go to the uh, uh, go to the Pramac seat. That that might be a better a better destination for him. It might even be better for him just to be given you know a full factory bike for more support and stuck in the uh, and left in the Grassini uh, in the Grassini squad. But um, it looks like they've got other plans for uh, uh, Grassini. It looks like Miguel Oliveira is going to end up there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it was one of those frustrating weekends watching Enea Bastanini. It's always frustrating seeing a, a rider you know can be great um, be mediocre. Neil, um, you highlighted the bracket of races that MotoGP hasn't visited for a couple of years now due to the pandemic. If you had to pick between Bastianini and Martin at the moment to to excel on tracks, they've got barely any mileage on a MotoGP bike. Tempted 
to highlight one or the other? I would. Uh, th- Philip well, Island. Thailand, uh, Thailand. I mean, Thailand is a lot like Austin, uh, Austria. And Philip Island. Who would you want to bet there? Uh, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you tend I mean, to say Martin for pure talent, but then Bastianini they are needs... quite evenly matched, aren't they? Yeah. And and their flaws this year have been quite similar in that they've been incredibly inconsistent. But when they have been good, they've been excellent. Well, that's why it's hard for maybe Ducati senior management to pull the trigger and make the decision like you said earlier. What an incredibly luxury problem to have, by the way. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, my loser from, from the Grand Prix, uh, I was tempted to pick Joe Roberts, actually, because... Uh, he looked to be striding away with that Moto2 race, um, you know, just one week after having a great appearance in Mugello. You thought, wow, he, wow he's really going to get some momentum building into this season. And then, you know, to tumble out of action at turn five, I mean, bitterly disappointing. I mean, that was a Romano Fenati-esque bin, wasn't it, from surefire victory position. Um, but I also want to lean towards Honda because, you know, we saw Stefan Bradl barely last any time in the race at all, Takanakagami we've covered comprehensively. Uh, Paul Espargaro had a problem with his rear Michelin. Um, he didn't even finish in the points. It's last. Uh, the last, yeah. So it's that's pretty miserable reading. I think the only thing that gives HRC some crumb of salvation was Alex Marquez after having a, an incredibly fast crash on the far, on the last corner on Saturday. Um, suspicions of concussion that were either covered up or didn't exist. Um, and he had or just slightly, ignored, yeah. just ignored, just, you know, it doesn't matter. It's only brain damage after all, <laughs> who cares? You know, you know what's, what's going to happen next is they'll all be banging their heads against the wall trying to knock themselves out a little bit because it might make them a little bit faster. Well, he had a, he had a, dam- he had a sore left arm, but um, I mean, it was a great ride. Uh, Neil, I asked you just before we started recording if that was actually Alex Marcus's uh, best result of the season in 10th, but you said it was his second best, so... Um, yeah, you're not too far wrong, Dave. Maybe, you know, some a bizarre crash and a bit of, um, you know, being punished and banged up actually leads to an improvement in performance. But again, you know, as you pointed out earlier, some people did crash, but Alex didn't on that occasion. So Honda are my sort of quasi-losers. So by that token, uh, I can give you a cheeky dig to the mush uh, and say it will improve and enhance your, your writing in the coming days. I, I have to say that um, I have vivid memories of being a, uh, a a teenager and being at a party one night and uh, drinking uh, an unsuitable amount of alcohol and feeling not particularly fantastic the day after I'm going to play rugby and actually it was one of the best games that I played because <laughs> I was in so much pain and discomfort that I really didn't care where, what, what I was doing and whether it hurt or not you know well, well, things couldn't get any worse so I might as well go uh, go out of vision of Dave being the late Jonah Lumu and bashing <laughs> his way through just you know breathing on the other players yeah I have one question before we wrap up Hang on, we need to hear Neil's loser from the race. Let's hear Neil's losers from the year. Well, it's it's quite an obvious one, but Pekka Banyaya, just because that was his third non-score of the year, add in the fact that he was 15th in Indonesia, and he's essentially given up 99 points, and we are nine races into the year, not even halfway through the, the season yet. That is a, a pretty big obstacle to overcome for Pekka, 66 points back in the championship now. Um I think we're, we've all been expecting Pekka to pick up a head of steam um, after his successes, but we've had that weird thing, that weird run of races from um, uh, Le Mans, where essentially the rider who won the previous Grand Prix has then crashed out. You know, Pekka won in Jerez, then crashed out at Le Mans. Bastianini uh, won in Le Mans, crashed out at Mugello. 
uh, Pepper One and Magello crashed out here, and you know, it just cannot get any sort of consistency together. This was not his fault, obviously. It was on for, I would say, at least a, a podium um, on Sunday had it not been for that first corner incident. But he's uh, he's a long way back in the championship, and Germany and Netherlands have historically over the last couple of years been Ducati's two worst tracks in the calendar. So even if he performs well, it's going to be tough for him to get in the podium at either of those races when Quadrao is in the form. It's going to be very interesting because, again, I think it will be decisive in a way. If we're coming up to Ducati's two worst tracks, it's going to be really important for Pekka Bagnaia to salvage whatever he can. And so if he can come away with... Um, you know, maybe a fifth or a sixth position turns out to be a fantastic result at the Saxon Ring because it's going to be so important. But the 22 bike is already much, much better. It already turns. But Pekka Banyar was saying today that, you know, what we what we lack, because uh, he was asked, you know, what do you need to beat a quarter hour? And he said, you know, more turning. Um, but then he did say, we've already got a lot more corner speed. Uh, a, a lot more than previously so that's really going to help uh, but I think it's going to be a, a matter of damage limitation and we're really going to see something in the championship or well we're going to see the way that the championship plays out is going to be in part determined by uh, how many points Peko uh, uh, Peko Banyai can score in these tracks uh, you know how many he can come away with how many how he can limit the uh, damage uh, limit the damage well he was quite nonchalant in his debrief actually on sunday evening i mean he kind of smiled and said you know uh you know i caught back 70 points in five to six races at the end of last season um so you know i can get back 66 with more than a half a season to go so you've got to admire his confidence really when it comes to that uh, Dave, Neil, fantastic to talk. We're gonna, well, goodness, it's been nine rounds of the season. It feels like nineteen already uh, in some ways. But um, <laughs> only eleven to go. Yeah, only eleven to go. Um, again, listeners, if you want to send us any questions through Patreon or through Twitter, please do. We do a special show for Patreon subscribers soon, where we want to tackle some of the the inquiries or some of the uh, the mysteries you might have about MotoGP that we would like to tackle for you. So that's going to be coming up soon. Uh, next week, we hope to preview Saxon Ring and get Steve English back on the show. He's been enjoying himself far too much on the Isle of Man, uh, taking some half-decent photographs as well, to his credit. So hopefully he'll be back on the Paddock Plus podcast. But for now, hope you enjoyed our witterings this week. We'll be back soon. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. And this is just for you, JB. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot you were in the room. JB, just to point out that Neil's girlfriend, Virginia, is incredibly impressed by that gesture. <laughs> Yes. Virginia, make him sleep on the sofa tonight. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>